Welcome to the Dave and Peg podcast, Unveiled. We are doing a series on psychedelics. This is part three of this series. If you haven't uh, listened to the first two, please go back and do that. Um, this is an episode where we're going to be focusing a little bit on um, how the therapeutic aspect of psychedelic therapy is intersecting with uh the psychological realities and theological realities of consciousness. And my guest today that uh, I got a chance to interview is named Dr. Bill Richards. He is a psychologist at, in the psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins University. He's head of the new uh, psychiatry um, and psilocybin research center at the Johns Hopkins University that just got uh, funded last year. Um, he has degrees from Yale Divinity School, Andover Newton Theological School, a PhD from Catholic University. Um, his background is in world religions and, uh, and psychology. And so I think he becomes a really interesting person for me in particular and Dave um, to hear his perspective, both as a psychologist who is seeing a different you know, ways of thinking about the mind and anxiety, but he is very quick to point out that all of this work is taking him back to his theological uh, underpinnings, that behind all of this work at Johns Hopkins is a fascinating question, which is, why is it that 90% of all of the research candidates that rate their experience as profound, mystical, and healing all say they encountered some concept of the divine. Uh, they had some kind of mystical experience. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask Bill about that. And uh, his most recent book was published in 2015. It's called Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences. And uh, it's one of the key books on understanding uh, both the history of psychedelics, but more importantly, how how you can frame them within different uh, religious and theological frameworks to help bring healing and hope to people's lives. Um, he's been doing this work for over 50 years. Uh, he's one of the few pioneers on our planet, and it was an absolute privilege to talk to him. He's also the one who's put together the Johns Hopkins playlist that's been used around the world. Um, his understanding of musicology and, uh, and psychedelics is also a fascinating uh, part of the interview. So hopefully you enjoy my interview with Bill Richards and then Dave and I begin to uh, riff and talk about uh, what this means for the, the kind of the new renaissance in psychedelics in our world. So enjoy the podcast. First, why don't you just start by saying your first and last name and what your role is uh, at your current research facility at Johns Hopkins. Well, I'm uh, Dr. Bill Richards. Uh, I've been involved in psychedelic research since uh, about 1963 when I was a graduate student in Germany in Göttingen. Um, um, at Johns Hopkins after 22 years of dormancy uh, in the United States. Uh, my colleague, Griffith, and I were able to obtain FDA approval uh, to relaunch 
of psychedelic research. Uh, and we started a project with psilocybin back in about 1999, uh, 2000. And we are now in our 20th year of research at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we have established the uh, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins with substantial funding and a growing uh, staff, and it's a very hopeful time. Uh, I'm going to unmute. It, it really is. I mean, it's incredible over the last probably five years that just to see the explosion of interest and research and, you know, therapists and the media attention. And it, it just seems like there's a revolution going on of openness. Why do you think, why do you think that's happening now in our time? Why, why in this last few years has been this openness that you haven't seen your entire life? I have my theories, I really don't know for sure. Uh, back in the uh, late 60s, there was a lot of social change going on um, in the women's movement, in race relations, uh, uh, in the anti-war movement, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, uh, LSD, and to some extent, Timothy Leary became almost the icon of that age. And then we had President Nixon uh, uh, with the legislation creating the scheduling of drugs uh, and uh, viewing Timothy Leary as the most dangerous man in America. Uh, and, that's, and there was a lot of sensational publicity, you know? not only in journal articles, but in uh, uh, TV dramas and so on, uh, that people took LSD and went crazy, you know, and kind of implied that everyone would jump off buildings and have deformed babies. And, and now we know that that's just not true. You know, the drugs do need to be used wisely and responsibly. Uh, they're not for everyone but they are incredibly safe uh, physiologically for just about everyone and they're very safe psychologically for most people especially those who have uh, good instruction and preparation and take the drug in a uh, interpersonally grounded uh, relationship of some kind so uh, it is a very hopeful time to see all this coming alive. Another factor, I think, is that there were a lot of people who chose not to take psychedelics back in the 1960s, but they had friends who did, and they know that most of them turned out okay, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and there's an awful lot of people out there who took psychedelics illegally in co as college students or whatever, but had very positive experiences, but they've never talked about it because the drugs have been illegal. You know, uh, when my book came out, a couple of my neighbors came over to talk about their psilocybin experience. Oh, wow. And I never would have guessed they knew anything about it, you know? So I think there is, there is a huge community 
that's really very knowledgeable in a very reasonable uh, way. And then the films that have been made recently, uh, Robert Barnhart's uh, New Understanding, mm. the uh, uh, fantastic Fungi movie, Neurons to Nirvana, etc., cetera, mm. uh, coupled with some very good books like uh, uh, Michael Pollan's yeah. book, yeah. which is selling very well. And uh, my own book, for whatever uh, contribution that might make, uh, um, Jim Fadiman's book on how to use psychedelics responsibly. And I know there are a number of them in the uh, process of being published right now that are very well written. And so there's kind of good education getting out there uh, in the world. There's a lot of people who will never look at our statistics in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, you know? It's $100 for a prescription, I think, <laughs> or a subscription, rather. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, in the uh, popular uh, world of the early 21st century, uh, Many people who are learning about this field feels it's feel it's very reasonable to explore why why shouldn't you be able to explore your own mind uh, to uh, do more intensive psychotherapy than ordinary uh, sitting in an office and talking can accomplish mm. um, what's the big deal this is a non-toxic, uh, non-addictive substance that's been around for 5,000 years, at least, maybe longer. And it, it kind of emerges in cultures and gets suppressed and emerges and gets suppressed, sort of like mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And um, uh, what are we afraid of? You know, that people might... Uh, uh, become more compassionate, uh, <laughs> less fearful, more compassion, <laughs> more empathy, a little more creative, uh, perhaps less willing to uh, go to another country and shoot a stranger, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure that in the evolution of humanity that's a bad thing, mm. you know. Mm. I love the coming together all these different streams that, that uh, you know, you get to be alive, I get to be alive in this new resurgence of, of both interest and research. And, uh, and I, I think uh, we're on the verge of something, uh, something big. And there's a shift in consciousness that I think we're all feeling and we're seeing it uh, in, some of this, uh, in some of the studies you guys are producing and, and the openness to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it holds up in different studies in different universities with different teams, you know, both in the U.S. and Canada and Europe, you know. It's, it's not just a fluke. It's very systematically replicated and supported. That If you uh, establish a, a relationship with a person, uh, if you provide basic instruction about how to navigate in these internal meditative states. Um, 
the drug is real, and presumably that you have uh, a safe drug in the right dosage, whether a natural mushroom or a synthesized uh, uh, substance. We do know that what's created in test tubes is profoundly sacred stuff. And, you know, to be able to, the value of that is that we know the precise dosage and uh, purity of the substance, which, of course, the whole medical community and the FDA, uh, EMA values, you know. Uh, with natural mushrooms, there's about 200 known species on our planets, and, and many of them have other chemicals besides psilocybin. Uh, within them and there's all these unknown variables about how they've been harvested and how they've been stored and you know, whether someone has added something to them to uh, try to change or improve them or you know and with the synthesized substance those issues just disappear mm. and um, my uh, my theme uh, is that I want to see psilocybin therapy made available to people who can't afford to go to Amsterdam or South America to do it legally, um, who are suffering, whether from end-of-life distress, from addictions, from depression. Uh, many of them uh, don't own a tie-dye t-shirt, <laughs> you know, they can't spell psilocybin, um, uh, they're never going to grow their own mushrooms in their closet, you know, but, but they're suffering humans, and we have a very uh, effective way of helping them, mm -hmm. and why sh should it not be available? You know, can, can you, I love that. I just love your heart and passion. And I, I just want to do everything I can to help realize your dream that, you know, obviously started uh, within you in the 60s. You saw the potentiality of this, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And now we're starting to see your kind of some of the original visionaries. It's pretty exciting, Bill. Um, Take me into a couple of, a couple of minutes, take me into um, the double-blind end-of-life cancer study that you were a part of at Johns Hopkins. Just give, Johns Hopkins, give me a little bit of an overview of what that was, uh, about, the, you know, ab about how rigorous it was, because you're one of the folks that were up close and personal to that rigorous study. So just talk to us about that double-blind study that you guys published. Boy, I, re I really should check my notes. It's several years since we published that, and there have been other studies. So I'm not sure I remember all the statistics anymore. Um, Even generally, just kind of walk us through what, we, what you guys were looking for in uh, these patients. Yeah, this was building on work with cancer patients we did back in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. Uh, the, uh, mainly then using LSD and DPT, dipropyltryptamine, a substance very similar to psilocybin. Um, a little bit with psilocybin back then. Um, and that was uh, really my uh, primary uh, research project. I, was, I wrote my 
dissertation uh, on that work years ago. Uh, but I experienced just so many absolutely beautiful transformations in people's lives and in their family dynamics. Um, how often the depressed cancer patient uh, would become the almost the social worker for the family and would help the family talk about the difficult things and, and live, have a good time, have some music and a few chuckles on the last day of your life. Why not, you know? Instead of lying in bed isolated and preoccupied with pain and withdrawing from the world and scared and feeling hopeless, you know? No need, you know? So uh, I just witnessed so much of this uh, that uh, I treated the last person uh, in 1966. Uh, is that right? No, 1977. I'm sorry, it was 1977. I treated the last cancer patient here in the United States. And the work got completely dormant. Um, actually, footnote there, not because the government uh, withdrew permission, actually, but because the state administrators felt it was too controversial and were... <laughs> <laughs> we're afraid to uh, continue supporting it, you know. Uh, so uh, you know, the, uh, it's it's not just uh, Uncle Samuel that we have to deal with, but it's many la layers of uh, bureaucracy and insecurity and uh, concern about what taxpayers think and so on. Um, the study at Hopkins, as I remember, it, there were three studies, one at UCLA, one at New York University, and one at Hopkins. Hopkins was the largest. Uh, and it simply, uh, as I recall, it gave two psilocybin sessions a month apart, if I remember right, two cancer patients uh, into a low dose and a high dose, uh, kind of randomly. Uh, in order to investigate uh, that it's not only the drug, but it's the quality of experience, the intensity of experience that is really therapeutic. That what, what seems most healing and enduring is the memory of an experience that happens on one six hour day and these transcendental states of awareness are sometimes only minutes in that six hour day or less seconds even where the mind seems to break out of the constraints of time, space, cause and effect and somehow tap into what we call the eternal or the infinite, uh, a state of consciousness we hardly have any words to describe but it's incredibly beautiful. It feels incredibly real. Uh, and it's often uh, reported as kind of impregnated by love, uh, playfulness, joy. And people remember that afterwards when the drug wears off. You don't have to keep taking the drug, you know? 
Uh, it's interesting, this is also true of people who have these experiences without psychedelics, the so-called natural mystics out there. Maybe they, in their brain chemistry, they generate their own DMT or whatever it is. Uh, but these experiences throughout uh, human history are recorded. We often call these people mystics, you know. In, in all the world religions, they're there to be found, uh, who kind of testify to the reality of revelation and uh, this uh, world where everything seems to make sense in spite of suffering and death and injustice and all this. You know, so it's, uh, and what is so incredible is that these experiences happen in very ordinary people, you know? Uh, people with junior high school educations from the inner city who are impoverished, uh, I, you don't have to have a uh, doctoral degree in comparative religion, you know. <laughs> it just seems to be there. And, and it happens in uh, good, honest skeptics, perhaps even easier than diehard believers, either theistic or atheistic, you know. Uh, it's, if you go into your mind with a sense of, openness, curiosity, trust, and you just kind of dive in and collect the experiences that occur. It's just incredible what happens in people's minds. How beautiful, how meaningful, how well choreographed for that particular person. And then the, the yield afterwards of being able to to live more fully is uh, dramatic. So in that, yeah. so after that study, you, you had something like 85% or something of people that would say that was one of the most profound experiences of their life. Is that kind of right? Yes, yeah. Uh, well, we have a questionnaire we use. Was it the most uh, profound spiritual experience of your life, or, or was it one of the three most, or one of the five most, I forget what. But, but you know, most people rate it way up there. Uh, not, not everyone has a uh, profound, mystical, transcendental experience the first time. Many do. Uh, some deal with their own personal uh, unfinished business, their grief and their guilt and their uh, interpersonal conflicts. But even when the whole day is spent in that domain of consciousness, if you will, uh, it's very, very helpful in alleviating depression, reducing anxiety, opening up interpersonal relationships, reducing uh, pain and preoccupation with pain. And uh, people live until they die. Why not? You know, I guess that's the thing, right? I mean, just the, you, you said, why not? Like, <clears throat> if you think about the Canadian context we're in, and it's kind of an interesting thing, we have a national law that allows people to get a physician to aid and assist them in dying if they feel like their final days are too much. 
So we've established that as a right for a Canadian citizen. You have access to a drug that will kill you with the, at the hand of a physician. Doesn't it seem logical that you would get access to a mushroom that could help you live and make sense of your final days? What, what, what's your comment on that situation in Canada? Well, you've said it. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Why should we be afraid of uh, a drug that will help us live? You know, and many of those people who think they might want to terminate their own lives through physician-assisted suicide, I think if they had a good psychedelic experience, they, they might say, well, it's nice to know that I always have that option, but uh, I may not need it. And many people don't. They live very fully right up to the end. And you come to the end and they say, well, it's been great, guys. I got to go. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, there's a feeling of trust, of security in the world. And the fear of death gets replaced by kind of a curiosity and an openness. You know, it's very interesting that these people don't become suicidal. You know, they say, I lost my fear of death, but uh, boy, I'm going to treasure every day I, I can have. You know? That's it. It's amazing. And it really is. And when the time to die does come, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, almost welcomed or accepted like as a transition in consciousness, perhaps, as a spiritual waking up of uh, what many religious people would say, it's time to go home, you know? Hmm. Uh, I've had a precious human life, what a great gift, uh, but, you know, it's complete now, you know? And on, on to new adventures. Hmm. Or if you want to be skeptical and say, well, maybe there is nothing after death, well, then there's nothing to fear either, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you, 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 uh, your, the title of your book, Sacred Knowledge, which was a, it's just a, for me, it connected with me most because I come from a background uh, of philosophy and theology. That's what I did my graduate work in. Uh, I had some uh, experiences as an adult where we lost a, a child uh, and, and just began to drift away from my own personal faith. Um, and had trouble with the package that Christianity came in. And, and it's really been lately through my experience with psychedelics that I'm finding my way back to my own faith. It has, it's very different. It's very open. It's non-judgmental. There's no concepts of hell. It's, hell is in our mind. It's inside of us. And so your book grounded me into this religious tradition that I had been, I'd learned my whole life. But then I began to find a new way through into that. You have no, you, you're not scared to talk about faith and spirituality, Bill, as a, as a part of this psychedelic experience. Um, sure. why, why for you? Why for you is spirituality and, and religion actually a really important grounding to understand this uh, psychedelic experience? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's simply there. Um, uh, it's waiting to be discovered in a uh, good old 
agnostics have profound revelatory experiences. Um, we, not long ago, we actually had someone who said, well, you know, I'm an atheist, that's my religion. It's just like being a Presbyterian or whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm an atheist, but I saw God. <laughs> and I've got to think about this, you know. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of delightful at times. And people can label it many ways, you know. Some will call it God, some might call it Brahman, uh, the ground of being, the even the void that contains all reality. You know, there's different words from different religious systems, uh, but that there's something at the core of our being that is incredibly real, incredibly beautiful, incredibly uh, loving, not as kind of a soupy uh, romantic emotion, but as an intelligent energy at the very core of, of human existence. You may know the line in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy at the end, that it is love that moves the sun and other stars. I think he knew what he was writing about, you know? What a great title uh, for a film, you know? It's love that moves the moon and the stars. I love that, Bill. I might, uh, that's a beautiful yeah. reference. I, 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 I love it. Uh, you know, what, what about for you? I'm, I'm, uh, uh, and I, again, it, it, I don't, I don't want to go there if you don't want to go there, but there was a very moving section in your book where you talked about your late wife, Ilsa. And uh, here she is at uh, 50. I think she got, you said she diagnosed at 40 and then passed away. I think she was 50 or something. Um, do, you, do you mind taking us into that story? Because I thought it was so beautifully told and it, and it shows that what, are, what, are, what can open up by in these moments of these, these psilocybin experiences with people that are in their end of life. Do you mind telling us that story? Give us some context, Bill? Sure, sure. Well, actually, I'll expand the story uh, a little beyond what's in the book. You know, sometimes people say, my gosh, you were so self-disclosing with what you put in the book. And I sometimes think, well, you have no idea what I didn't put in the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ilza uh, was born in 1936 uh, in Dortmund in Germany. And as a seven-year-old child, she witnessed the bombing of uh, Dortmund. Uh, standing at the bunker, at the entrance to the bunker with her father watching the bombs fall, keeping people being killed all around her. I met her uh, as a student at Andover Newton Theological School in the Psychology of Religion program, and we fell in love and got married. And she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, Whenever there was a fire engine going by, back past, there was always an air raid siren, you know, and she'd get tense and terrified. Uh, she suffered from depression, really feeling, is it right to bring children into this suffering world, you know? Um, but she was a psychiatric nurse, and we moved down from Boston to Baltimore to do work with psychedelic research. We had two NIMH funded grants in those days. 
That was around 1967. And uh, in those days, in order to uh, function in psychedelic research, you were offered two on-the-job training LSD experiences. And like all other employees, she received LSD, uh, just as we give it to patients with um, music and preparation and in a nice kind of living room setting. And uh, she had a very profoundly meaningful uh, experience. Uh, and it's hard to put into words, but I remember she expressed it something like watching a gun shoot off and then it becoming the, the big bang and the eternal world where there was just this intuition that all is well, or in religious language, he's got the whole world in his hands, you know? Well, anyway, it completely wiped out her post-traumatic stress disorder and her depression, you know? And she went on to be a wonderful mother. But as you know, at 50, even though we were working with cancer patients, she developed breast cancer. And I remember how shocked we were at first. It's like, uh, boy, if anyone can handle this, we ought to be able to. <laughs> but uh, uh, she lived a decade uh, very fully. Uh, most people didn't even know she had cancer. She um, had uh, uh, finally, uh, when it came time to die, she... Uh, she lived very fully up to the end. She didn't feel any need to take a psychedelic again. She still had the memories from before. Um, and uh, she had a, a very uh, peaceful, blissful uh, death at, here at home. Was, uh, we, I was lying beside her, you know? Uh, Two little boys asleep in the house, 111 and 113, you know? So, uh, one other uh, footnote to the story is that when she and I were uh, working with cancer patients with uh, DPT at that time, dipropyl tryptamine, uh, one of our patients, turned out to literally have been a 19-year-old young man who dropped bombs over Dortmund. Oh, <laughs> so gosh. here we were, you know, the 19-year-old man, young man was now a 49-year-old terminal cancer patient. Uh, Ilza had moved from being a seven, year old traumatized child to a 36 year old psychiatric nurse, you know? And there they were holding hands, reconciling, um, <laughs> powerful stuff. Uh, Jung called it synchronicity, I think, you know? But um, a different time, uh, a different world, different social pressures, and they connected with their love of bombs and Brock, Brahms and Bach, rather, you know, you know, 
and uh, the war was history. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing story. Incredible, beautiful story there. Wow. Um, but the, 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 the magnitude of what this research can contribute to the world. You, 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 were, you used words like staggering, like this is game changing, you know, revolutionary. Those are the kind of words you've used. Yeah. When, but it's not just giving the drug. That's right. You know, it's not just throwing the drug in your mouth and seeing what happens, either the synthesized molecule or the mushroom. It's with preparation, with interpersonal grounding, uh, the right dose under the right conditions. But when those are in place, it's, it's a sacrament. Yeah. Wow. You know, you, you talked about the, the need for a spiritual experience. There's almost a correlation between people that list on the questionnaire, I had a, a spiritual experience. Those people who have that seem to have the long-lasting effects. And those who maybe haven't yet don't, it, that seems to be the, the, the linchpin. Is that, can you explain that? Yeah. Well, people benefit, as I mentioned, who don't have spiritual experiences, just intensive accelerated psychotherapy. You know, that's worth doing, you know. But those who have these, these uh, transcendental death and rebirth uh, feeling uh, you almost don't say I had a mystical experience. It's more, might be more accurate to say the mystical experience had me, <laughs> you know, because uh, the everyday self kind of melts into it. Like uh, uh, the Hindus have this wonderful image of the drop of water of the ordinary self merging with the ocean of Brahman. And when you're in that ocean mode, um, uh, you're not your little self bragging about an experience. You're part of something infinitely vaster and greater. Uh, but yeah, when those deep experiences occur and people try to find a few words, but they remember it, you know, something, uh, it gives you the sense of safety, of being at home in the universe. Uh, that in spite of all the traumas and injustices you've experienced in life, uh, it's still a good world. Mm. Is there ways that you've learned to develop that can help promote those experiential, those spiritual experiences for therapists that, that, you know, yes, we got set and setting, you've got intentions, you've got trust in the room. Um, have you found other little things that can help promote that spiritual experience for people? Well, certainly uh, the wise use of music during the period of drug action. Uh, music can provide kind of a, uh, um, a supportive matrix that carries you as you move through consciousness, provides security, sort of like the trapeze net uh, for the trapeze artist, you may not need it, but if you do, it's immediately there, you know, it's going to keep you safe. I don't think the music causes content in most cases, 
but it allows it, it content. It gives the uh, structure, nonverbal structure and security that's needed to go beyond words and language uh, deep into the psyche. You, you've been part of creating those playlists at Johns Hopkins. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about uh, how you came up with the current playlist and are there a number of them and are they evolving? It's always evolving. You know, we're always, you can only have six hours of music. <laughs> so we're always trying to uh, differentiate between the excellent and the very good, you know, and everyone has their favorites, you know. Um, but uh, music like uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, uh, the Nimrod section of Elgar's uh, Enigma Variations, uh, the slow movement of the Brahms Violin Concerto, uh, the Transfiguration section of Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, um, the slow movement of the Mozart clarinet concerto. What, what is it about these pieces that seem to work well? About them, and, and the Goretzky Third Symphony, a more uh, recent work, uh, it's just people of all different backgrounds report that that music is incredibly meaningful and helpful and supportive. And many of these people, if you ask them in advance, you know, do you like classical music? They would have said no. You know, like it's, it has nothing to do with the everyday preferences of either the person or the staff. But there's something about the structure of certain music. Uh, it almost feels like it takes you back into the eternal world or into the mind of the composer or something like that. Um, and it's forward leading, it's unfolding, it's chromatically ascending often. Uh, and it, uh, it, it doesn't have unpredictable changes in rhythm. It doesn't frighten you. It strengthens you and supports you. So that's one part of ensuring safety. Uh, you can also have a very, very valuable uh, session in total silence, you know, the music doesn't have to be there. But frankly, total silence is very hard to come by. You know, people sneeze, air conditioning system go on and off, doors creak, <laughs> etc. And we may as well have structured sound because we're going to have sound, you know. Last week, I heard an amazing podcast on Joe Rogan, an author by the name of Brian Marescu was on uh, talking about his book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And he was exploring the history of religion, uh, particularly as it's passed down uh, over the last 10,000 years using plant medicines and then moving into the Greek culture in the Eleusinian Mysteries at Eleusis and then uh, being morphed into a form of Christianity that used the Eucharist. Uh, and there is archaeological evidence of ergot, which is a mushroom that makes LSD, being spiked in the wine in the early 300s in the Christian church. 
which was stamped out in the fourth century by the Roman Catholic Church who wanted to be able to control the power through men to be able to serve the Eucharist. The Eucharist was served primarily by women for 300 years using plant-based medicine spiked in the wine, and that was uh, all shut down by the Catholic Church in the 4th and 5th century. And so he goes into great detail both in the ancient Greek, Latin, and by doing incredible uh, archaeological digs and finding uh, the prevalence of these mushrooms in the Christian um, vessels that were used during communion. It's an absolutely riveting two-hour interview, and it first starts with an introduction by historian and writer named Graham Hancock. And I'm going to play a small clip from Graham, who's talking about the history of these sacred medicines that have been used around the world. And then we'll move right into Dave and my uh, conversation about some of these topics. I don't really know of any ancient civilization which achieved a, a high level of functioning which didn't use psychedelics. Psychedelics were astonishingly widely used uh, in, the, in the ancient world um, and used very carefully with um, great attention being played to what we now call set and setting. So for example, you can go to Chavin de Huantar, uh, about 200 miles north of Lima, turn right, drive up into the Andes, 14,000 feet, drop down into the Chavin Valley, and you'll find yourself in an ancient archaeological site, the largest part of which are galleries below the ground, which were used in ceremony in ancient times, and that ceremony involved the San Pedro cactus. It involved in which mescaline is the active ingredient. Uh, and the, when the conquistadors came there, they couldn't understand what all this was about. Why had they created these great galleries? What was, what was going on? We now know what was going on. They were creating a, a, a setting that would maximize the effect of the psychedelic of choice, which in their case was the San Pedro cactus. Um, if you go to Eleusis in ancient Greece, it's a ruin now outside of Athens. But uh, for more than 2,000 years, until the fourth century after Christ, Eleusis was the beating heart of the ancient Greek world. Uh, and again, like Chavin de Huantar, it turns out that there are enormous underground galleries, darkened spaces, which they called the Telestrion. We now know what was going on there. The initiates in the Eleusinian mysteries came and drank a brew before they went down into the Telestrion. That brew essentially was LSD. It was a non-poisonous form of ergot growing on barley, which they, which they then harvested and cooked up in the brew called the Kaikion. So no wonder when people went down into the Telestrion, into those darkened spaces which were subtly lit here and there, that they would have life-transforming experiences. Plato was an initiate, Sophocles was an initiate, Cicero was an initiate, Pindar was an initiate. They all said that the experience they had had in the Telestrion after drinking the brew was life-changing. They lost utterly their fear of death. They knew that death was not the end, but just the beginning of the next great adventure. And those spaces were the heart of everything that was good and worthy and worthwhile about ancient Greek culture. And it's a comment upon the way that civilization has gone, that it was fanatical early Christianity that destroyed Eleusis and that put an end to those rites 
that had been so life-affirming and so life-enhancing uh, for, for so long. Uh, and this is true, frankly, all around the world, whether you go to ancient India, whether you go to ancient Mexico, of course to ancient South America. In South America we have a whole pyramid city called Corral, which has only been excavated in the last 15 years. Um, and you know, archaeologists went to it with their prejudices. Nobody could have created a huge place like this unless they were highly domineering and hierarchical and making war on others. Turns out there's no evidence of warfare whatsoever at Corral. But what there is evidence of is the massive use of hallucinogenic snuffs from the Amazon. So this great culture that built the largest pyramids ever created in the New World, pyramids that are 5,000 years old, this great culture was founded upon and based upon the import of hallucinogenic snuffs from the Amazon and the free interrelation of peoples without any, without any warfare. You can find this all around the world. Psychedelics have been central to human culture from the very beginning. And I think that goes right back to the Stone Age, to the Upper Paleolithic. There's um, a moment when a light seems to go on in our ancestors' heads all around the world. And they start producing art that is definitive of visionary experiences. They are depicting visionary experiences. Uh, and that's the moment that we get this huge step forward in the evolution of human behavior. We're already anatomically modern, but the software wasn't there. It looks like it was psychedelics that provided the software that brought about modern human consciousness. We are now in a process of reversion from that. We need to correct that course. We need, to, we need to return to the course of expanded consciousness, of dissolved boundaries, of openness to the universe, uh, and to the spirit of, of, of love and nurture, which is fundamental to the human experience. He, he wrote so this, yeah, there, there's, there's, it's this book I'm reading, and um, it's called uh, The Immortality Key. And, um, and it's, it's by this guy named Brian Murzik. Murakowski, Murakusk. Ah, it's the hardest na last name. Murasku? Murasku. Brian Murasku. How would you say that? Wow. Okay, let me work on that for a second. Okay. So, Secret history of the religion with no name. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of take you into this. Rescue is the last. Mira Rescue. Yeah, Brian Mira Rescue. He, uh, so I heard him on Joe Rogan last week. Uh, and oh, so yeah, guys, yeah, this guy is. Uh, so it's 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 worth <laughs> for those for those folks who are interested in in, uh, in the field of psychedelics and and history of, of kind of where this stuff comes from. This guy is really fascinating. So I thought you say for those people who are just psychedelics and the early church fathers and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a niche a niche crowd to be sure. Very niche. I got it. Okay, now you're just abandoning it. Yeah, I know. I'm putting that there. Um, so it's so what we did is we uh, I, I just I listened to this guy's podcast and uh, and with Joe Rogan and then all of a sudden something connected into me about what he said and I just said this guy's doing a history of not just Christianity but he's he's doing a history of humanity from about from the early cave paintings. To the modern era, on, so it's not just about Christian. No, no, it, it obviously enters big into the Christian realm, and obviously the Christ and all that stuff. But his his interest is is just on the history of how sacred plants have been used for for all of human history, and he's his his interest is in um, linguistics and archaeology. Though that's the so <clears throat> he he knows about seven languages, so he knows ancient Sanskrit. Uh, ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, Italian, French, German, English, 
um, and a, uh, yeah, a couple others. It's just it's, so he's a brilliant guy. He's a, a Harvard lawyer um, with a classics background, <laughs> and he did classics uh, I think at, at Harvard as well. Um, and so he is. He came across the so the book begins. This is where I kind of want to start. His book begins with a conversation he has with a woman who is dying of cancer about you know number of years ago, and she's in the Johns Hopkins studies, and she does one session with a high dose psilocybin mushroom, and he begins to talk with her after this session, and she starts to put into words the most profound experience she ever had. And as he's listening to her put these words together, his, as a Catholic going to a Catholic school and a, and a Jesuit college and all, you know, all this, he did Georgetown University and did you know, all this other stuff, he's, he's like, that sounds exactly like the beatific visions that are described in many of the mystics, Christian mystics. So he must be reading these trip accounts going, I've read that before. Yeah, exactly. What, what you just said, lady in cancer trials, I'm yeah. fascinated by your story, but... What you just said, I, I heard that. Where did I? Yeah. Probably like, where did I read that? He starts going back to the Latin. He starts going Hildegard over here, this saint over here, you know, Saint John of the Cross here, early, you know, early church fathers and mothers here, these people here. He's like, though, and it's very particular in the language of uh, a dissolving of the ego, a being united with the beauty of the universe, overwhelming sense of love and connection, uh, a sense that you are enveloped in kind of the arms of love of the universe, that you become one with God, that you are God. All of this language is not unique to these Johns Hopkins patients. These are divine beatific visions that have occurred throughout human history that are not designated only in Christian literature, that these experiences have happened all over humanity. You were saying to me earlier something about that really struck me, something about mortality. Yeah. Like we, this confronting. It's the it's the confrontation of death before we die, that is the unifying unifying theme through all of these experiences, and it's the recognition that you are not just material, that there is another realm, and that your consciousness, who you are, beyond all of the feelings and experiences and, and thoughts in your head that their separation begins to happen and that you begin to feel the the universality of your own consciousness, that you are beyond just that you have an awareness beyond the world that you're in, that you confront your own mortality in the here and now while you're alive and that you now lose the fear of death and you lose the fear that all fear is just, uh, it's, it's, it's limiting because if you don't have, you don't fear dying, then you don't, Really fear the the challenges that might come your way. That you know, I just when you said it, that it passes my smell test for myself. Um, you know, my my sh- the shift in my own life has been. If I say, what's the biggest shift in my life in the last ten years? It it's been. I'm not afraid of of death and dying anymore. And the more I talk with people, I mean. I, I used to I used to watch movies when I was younger, like Woody Allen, for example. The the death motif shows up in most of his films, right? He's just really he's he wrestles with what I just remember when I was a younger man just kinda going, I don't who gives a shit, I don't care, big deal. I didn't think about it a lot. Mm. But the older I got the more I thought about it. And I, I'm getting to the place now that I think as a psychotherapist, 
I think there's there's two things that bring most people into therapy. Trauma, which is a big, big part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think of that now as just trying to get my balance back after being traumatized. But the other is death. And 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 most of us don't think of it as death, but I, I just think it's this this like you say, the is this all there is? Like am I am I, you know, eighty years and done and it, it just it it doesn't fit something. Mm -hmm. And um, but to have an encounter, like like this guy is saying, he's all across the the ages and different mm -hmm. different cultures and different times to have these like very consistent kind of pieces. And one of them being to have an encounter with that which is beyond, in not just in a conceptual way but an experiential yeah. way to say, oh, I saw something, I felt something, yeah. you know, is, is, it's just amazing. And yet there it's, um, I remember Todd, my friend Todd told me about this short story that he read years ago. And we, he said, uh, I'll probably butcher the story, but the basic plot of the story was um, somehow God gets proved. Heaven and God get proved somehow. That's the device of the story. I can't remember exactly how it is, but it's now, it's no longer an issue of faith or whatever. It's an issue of, um, you know, the lamp is on in here. There is a God, there is evidence. And what, you, what he said happened in the book was people began um, suiciding because they'd rather be there than here. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of truth of that. Right, if you know, if you're having a really bad day, and it's just like, hey, I'm gonna go to heaven. Like it's, you can see, but it's these experiences stop just short of that, right? So it's it still requires, like, I mean, you must be like this mm -hmm. picture. Still requires days where you go, really? Yeah. Is it real? <clears throat> I yeah. think it's real. Is it real? Oh, I do believe it's real. But there's enough, like for lack of a better word, uncertainty around it. This is the, you and I talked about this years ago when we talked about how faith and doubt really, really coexist nicely together. And, and I think that's part of it, is there's enough, there's enough uncertainty about these experiences, that we call it subjectivity about mm -hmm. these experiences, yeah, yeah. That, that keeps me here, mm -hmm. that keeps me working my program here, so to speak. Does so, that make so sense? That, so, so let's go back, so his, his, his premise of uh, what he's trying to unpack in this book is the, the history of these kind of sacred plans and how they've helped people wake up to their, their own, you know, their, their, in, their own immortality. And he says, the issue is not that people just have these one-time experiences and then they can hold on to them forever. That's how, like, he says this lady at the John Hopkins, she's had one experience, you know, three years later, you know, still is beaming from the memory of that experience. Right, right, That's right. beautiful, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And he says, what we found throughout history is the need for the ritualization of these experiences for people to do their work. What do you mean? Say more. So, I mean, I think it was... Yeah, yeah. so that these experiences need to happen over and over and over in this life. It's not just have one psychedelic experience. This is, this is that kind of what he's trying to prove historically over tens of thousands of years. Hmm. That what's happened is that these communities, once they discover and use these plants in this way, say, you've experienced it. You've experienced the other side. You've seen, you know, you, you've seen a kind of the, the, the divine nature of your being. But life is hard. It's brutal. Like, 
It's yeah. brutal 5,000 years ago, a, a thousand years ago. Life is hard and terrible and disease and pestilence. And you think COVID is hard? Times that by a thousand if you want to live back in the Middle Ages or maybe 2,000, 4,000 years ago. It's brutal. Hey, it's, how about just before penicillin came along? Right. You're going to so die of infection most says, likely. For what these communities are longing for is in the midst of your monthly grind of women dying in childbirth and people, you know, just death and dying is part of your everyday life. And where do they choose to do these? They choose to do these in crypts, in around their ancestors, and they have these experiences that continue to remind them, right, we are divine. Even in the midst of the horror and of what's going on, you kind of get this um, sacramental uh, inclusion in the ritual of the community. They do it once a month. Hey, so They're reminded of their, their of these moments all the time. So are you kind of, uh, or is this guy suggesting mm -hmm. whatever you're saying? I just want to try to just connect the dots yeah, a yeah. here. And I, it, it, I'll do a longer review on it on another podcast maybe, but I'm just kind of starting the conversation. No, I love, I love the idea. Is that, is it possible, like you mentioned, that there was recipes mm -hmm. in, uh, say, in the first few centuries after Christ um, of of wine yeah. that was mixed with ergot mushroom with mushroom LSD. Yeah. Like, is it possible that when we think of a communion, perhaps yes. that the communion was the wine was psychedelic yeah. wine, and it was a it was a uh, not not only so this is where his book lands, and he does his five hundred pages of Greek, Latin, and you have to get. You, it, this it, is a scholarly. This stuff. is scholarly work. This is not, you know, it's well written. It feels very Dan Brown esque in that sense. He's it's going here. Code. It's very Da Vinci Code. He's yeah. going to the archives in the in the Vatican. He's going to the secret. He takes three years to apply to get access to these frescoes that haven't been seen in, in like four hundred years. He gets original That's trial true. documents for a guy named Bruno. Um, who is uh, the, the master mixologist in the Middle Ages that was put to death in the Inquisition. He begins to look at all of these documents where they had the, the, the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church, put together 80,000 female Christian leaders that had recipes for psychedelic spiked wine that they were doing in house churches across Europe. And the Vatican didn't want that. They wanted to centralize all power in the hands of... And he has the list of all the women and has the recipes. And, and he's like, look at look what's happening. And then he does, not only does he look at the recipes using this ergot, which is a fungus that grows on barley in, in area of Greece, he begins to see frescoes of, the th of women over, over top of Christian chalices in, in house churches. And, and he has these, he's these paintings going, look what's in their hand. There's the chalice with a, cr a cross on it. The other hand is three mushrooms. The other hand is the barley. And they're putting it together into a thing. And this is from like, you know, he has stuff from two. The, the most stunning piece he's got is a fresco. Because so all reference to psychedelics was, was outlawed by the church after 321. After Constantine made Christianity the official religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, the first 300 years of underground Christianity... Number one was all led mainly by women. Number two it was all uh, psychedelic Eucharists uh, that were finally outlawed. And he begins to trace the history. And then what he does, not just in, not as he just finding the literature, which is fascinating, and the uh, the Gospels, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and these others that talk about these kinds of things that were not put into the canon. He begins to then say, 
let's say Mary Magdalene's gospel was, you know, she was a follower of Paul and one of the early church leaders, and yes, did, was part of the delivering of the Eucharist in these kinds of ways. We've got to now find other evidence that support that. And so he begins to start showing, oh, here's, here's frescoes, here's this, here's uh, hidden documents about the recipes that they begin to use. What do you mean by fresco? I know uh, so very... fr frescoes are paintings that are usually put on uh, that or uh, done prior to, they're usually done on either walls or on, on some kind of papyrus or these okay. kinds of things. Ancient paintings that predate uh, 4th century. So these are early, between 0 and 300. We're yeah. looking for paintings of the early church, how they did communion. We want, we want to find that because if they were done back then, and we can, and because the early church, uh, sorry, the later church destroyed a lot of the early evidence of, of psychedelic after, after they outlawed pharmacon, which is the Greek word for, uh, as we get pharmacy, yeah, yeah. pharmacon spiked uh, wine. So he begins to show in the, he's, he, he finds these objects and wine jars and these from the early, and they start doing these um, tests using like, uh, kind of like DNA tests, but you can scrape the stuff and then put it through a spectrometer and begin to find what's actually in these early Christian wine jars that the Vatican has. And he's like, oh, they're full of, they're full of ergot mushroom that was spiked here and wine and this. This is a common practice. So that kind of validated the yeah, so theory a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So, it, so anyway, so he traces it back that this tradition is not new to Christianity. They inherited it from the Greeks. So I, I'm just curious. So the Greeks inherited it from back. The dead, all Constantine, the way back to the, did it slow down? Did it, no, it, went, it went underground. It went underground. So, amazing, right? Yeah. Underground. So yeah. So the, the history of, of these psychedelic spiked wine, and before that was was beer in the old soma tradition in in India. So the Indian India Vedas talk about soma, uh, a, a psychedelic drink that they would use uh, in order to meditate and, and encounter the divine. Those recipes are passed down from the ancient Indians. They make their way into Babylonian Cana. He begins to see the recipes there. Then they show up in the ancient Eleusinian, Eleusinian mysteries in Greece. So Eleusis is the high point of, of the Greek Empire. And they have these uh, psychedelic drinks that they would do. Aristotle, Plato all talk about the Eleusinian mysteries and the ergot spiked beer that they would drink there. I got, uh, like, you told me about... So I'm going way off on this, but... No, no, I mean, a history the, I, I mean, so yeah. many little bits are popping in my brain. First of all, like you mentioned, India, but uh, parallel to this around the world, mm -hmm. there are all these non-scribing um, indigenous cultures yes. that are just, just oral tradition and continuing yeah. to use... Uh, you know, for instance, in, in the Amazon, yeah. uh, ayahuasca would be yeah. used, you know, and has been used for a very, very long time. But, you know, there's just yeah. not a lot written about it, so, yeah. you know, we can just kind of glimpse into that. So it's not just the the ownership of, say, the Christian tradition. Yeah. Um, the other is, because the Christian tradition is mine, you know, um, since I've been getting into psychedelic literature and understanding trips and whatnot, um, the, the revelation of John... Yeah. is just so interesting to me. It, it's always, like we talked about, it's yeah, just a yeah, weird, yeah. you know, a weird, this apocalyptic literature, you know, full of, like, obvious imagery of... of, of uh, John's tripping and writing. I think so. 100%. I mean, once I started to read, so read trip stuff, I went, oh, well, he just had a trip. Yeah. And, you know, and had some sort of insight into how, how I can encourage these 
persecuted Christians using metaphors and, of like yeah. it works out. Yeah. Like if you, if you could kind of um, if you could kind of reduce it down for me, that's kind of it. Yeah. If you say, what's the best encouragement you can give to someone who's in a real shitty life situation, right? Is hang in there. It works out. There's a bigger story going right, on. Right. Right. I mean, and that would be encouraged. Yeah. You know, it was encouraging to me. Yeah. And it's 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 sort of and, a and and how do you do it? You do it as a storyteller using images of monsters and angels and you use this fantastical image. But I don't I don't think he wrote it like a like that way like I want to write a ghoster. It's what happened. Yes. He doesn't have to like create it. He just was like, wow, this is what I saw. It blowing these are, my mind. These are archetypal like Jungian archetypes that you know yeah, 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 uh, yeah. that he's tapping into about good and evil and black and white and the you know the 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 rise that we think you know we think evil's winning but there's another there's a larger an arc of history I just think it's so fascinating peg to think about so many so much of our you know early christianity um, through this lens like what were you telling me the other day about the baptism of christ yeah that's fascinating hey there's this guy named Rupert Sheldrake, another perfect. Uh, Maybe we talked about yeah, Rupert. Yeah, we did that talk name, about Rupert that. Sheldrake. Yeah, that's pretty good. But, but that's so fascinating to me that Jesus at his baptism, which again is his imagery, which we I don't know I don't know how the modern mind kind of reads that sort of like okay so what okay we we get that you're writing about you know doves and whatnot but I wonder you know the the, the average guys are like I wonder what actually happened that day yeah. and, like, and his research is. There were lots of baptism cults that used near-death experiences as a way to elicit uh, a kind of NDA experience, which is you, you're in the moment where you think you're not going to be able to breathe. Your psyche generates a whole bunch of visions and kind of prepares you for this kind of experience of dying. And in that, they bring you back out of the water and they're... Oh, <gasps> my goodness, I just faced my own mortality. I can't believe I'm so happy to be alive. And you're like, you willingly did this? And people would record these experiences, trip-like experiences from being held underwater and then being brought back. And then obviously it would come imprecise, right? So these baptism cults. Some people would die. Yes. And so, you know, like... You know, so he argues that John the Baptist was part of a, a this a baptism cult. Of it, was his, it was his, it was his like moniker. Yeah, this is what John he does. The baptizing. I'm guy. going to give you an experience that you will never forget, and then, and you will come back and go. I just saw. I just came face to face with my mortality, right? And so it, that's an interesting angle on on understanding how uh, how, how these people could gain followings uh, and 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 well, why is there a more powerful ritual in Christianity related to dying and coming back to life, death and resurrection, than the baptism? I mean, that's yes. that's what baptism is about. Yeah. And you know, we've all sat through our share of baptism services where that gets well, what you know, drilled into our head. But what if it what if it was an actual near-death experience yeah. or a psychedelic experience or something where a person had a sense a very powerful experiential sense of their immortality yeah. and and that I've just I've almost died but I've now come back to life in, in so many psychedelic trips you read about people having these death experiences mm -hmm. in their yeah. trips right they, they feel like hey I've died and now I've come back to life. Oh, so this TV series yeah, yeah. that came out uh, during COVID called The Great, I, it's really good. Very well done. It's, uh, it, the byline is an occasionally true story, right? Hmm. But 
that there is, uh, it's, anyways, there's one scene where the archbishop, um, uh, he's, he's been uh, demanded to have a word from God about something. Like, so the, the emperor says, you, you know, we need, we need God's uh, opinion on something. Yeah. And he doesn't want to do it, but he said, ah, go have your dreams. Don't you get dreams? Because he always talks about having dreams. And eventually he's backed into a corner, the bishop's back into a corner. So off he goes into the wilderness and he pulls out of his pocket a handful of uh, probably Cubanus mushrooms and uh, he just eats them. And then he has this massive vision. He's just tripping. He's tripping. And, and I thought to myself, well, yeah. Of course. Of course that's what they did. Yes. That, I mean, they needed to have ecstatic visions of... Yes. of you know things beyond, and you know yeah. that while they may have been outlawed for the laity, yeah. they were still available to you know the yeah. clergy or whatever. And and I think if you begin to start like prophecies and all this all this kind of stuff, I can understand why if people are taking a spiked sacrament every week that's spiked with an LSD ergot mushroom, and then and 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 there's these ecstatic utterances happening and. You're going to need some guidance on how to, you know, when when to just spout off and go, I saw this thing and I'm going to make this. You're the three-headed devil girl now. I saw it in my head and you should be put to death. Or like, well, It's, it's a, crazy. In the, I can understand why these visions wanted to be controlled a little bit, but I understand yeah. as well uh, how visions can happen. Now. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, it's a new thought for me, so I can rip yeah, this yeah. a bit. So I'm just thinking again of John's vision in the Revelation and this, you know, this mm -hmm. what this TV show does with this. And in in the in the Great, he, you know, he's actually tripping. He's not again. He's, he's not he's not generating yeah. these things. It's coming to him, yeah. right? Which is a very different experience because if you're generating it, then you're making it up. Yeah. And so uh, so here's my thought I just had. So give me a sec. Okay. So what would you do if you didn't know about psychedelics. Yeah. You didn't know psychedelics were possible. You didn't know what psychedelics did to you. But you read the Revelation of John and you read these big prophecies and you say to yourself, well, sometimes God reveals things to you. And um, so then you just, you could just make it up. And do you remember Jesse Duplantis? Oh, yeah. Do you remember? So there was a guy years ago that you and I had faith, fun with. A faith teacher. Yeah, faith he, had, he had a vision of heaven yeah. and that he made a lot of money going throughout the southern United States just uh, doing these these conferences where he would just tell about what happened when he had this this big vision. But listening to it now after he heard so many trip stories, I go, Oh well, you make you're making that up. Yeah, you can tell it's not the same thing. Yeah, like I and you know and every time we listen to him, he would add more to it right. or change something. Oh, let me tell you, the street was going. It was going so good. Yeah, yes, yes. yeah. yeah that's always... I think that he he his mansion was right beside King David, who right. had a red beard. Right. I mean, it's just like yeah, that's not how it works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you could just tell the the phoniness of yes, it because yes. he's just making shit up. Yeah, you can just tell that. Yeah. But when you hear these, like uh, when I when I started thinking about, for instance, again the Revelation of John, I started thinking to myself, yeah, that poor guy probably had never done psychedelics before. Probably was you know on this exiled on this island in the Mediterranean, Patmos, 
and probably came across some some mushrooms one day and his his aide said oh you know there this will aid you yeah it'll aid you in in connecting with god and he probably does like a high dose mushroom session and has this powerful powerful vision of um, the end of the world and just apocalyptic kind of imagery and then and and in my opinion the the exegetical key so to speak of revelation is why did john write the book and because he himself was in exile and christians were being persecuted throughout you know asia minor and he wanted to encourage them yeah. and he, there's larger forces going on than just what you are seeing right now or what i said earlier yeah. hang in there right it works out yeah. you know if that's just that very like what a what a what a father would say to his son in the middle of a storm that's scaring the, the child to death. But the dad knows it's just a thunderstorm and he just comforts the child and says, hang in there, it works out. Yeah. This is just temporary. Mm. It's going to go away. Let not your heart be troubled. Yeah. Right? And there's, there's, there's something so substantially true about that, that all yeah. of us know is just the fabric of what animals do to their, their young and what we do to our young and what the universe does to us. And it's just like um, this, this life that we're in, this bound by time and space and, and the like you said earlier, the hardship for all of us, regardless of what century you're living yeah. into. It's really hard to be encased in a body with limitations and, and, and it's, it's, it challenges our wisdom to the, mm-hmm. to the very core to be able to have the, the universe, the divine come alongside of us in that moment in a very real experience just like our fathers did with us and put put their arms around us and basically say hang in there it works out mm-hmm. right that's so yeah. that's so yeah. simplistic but real right yeah. and and when we have those experiences in our life today when we when we can look around at you know the the hardness of our lives and the scaring the shit out of us you know how am i how are my kids going to do mm-hmm. am i going to stay employed is covid going to get me just the real things that that scare us i was talking to a friend the other day about about what could happen around the u.s election you know just mm-hmm. i mean i kind of jokingly you know i've been joking around hey it's going to get goofy the next day so well, what if it goes past goofy that you know violent and whatnot and mm-hmm. and you know that in the country just south of us that there's pockets of civil war and whatnot i hope that doesn't happen it probably won't but it could yeah and people are looking at that getting really scared peg anxiety numbers are going off like, i know and i just that's, that's crazy to be able to say what if it, there was like you know it well, maybe just let me finish yeah. thought. it's just it's one thing for me to say to someone you know hang in there it gets better but to actually have an experience of the divine right so it's not it's not just something that that someone said to you it's an actual experience of a of a energy of a presence putting its arms around you yeah, and saying i love like you i never never haven't loved you and i'll always love you and hang in there hang in there yeah. it works that, out. that feeling and dave i think you're getting to the heartbeat of what's happening in the renaissance right now of psychedelics the renaissance that's happening now um that is being spoke of all around our planet is coming about because of the inability for religion to be able to answer that question. The, the, the rise of the spiritual but not the religious population is, is just, it's, I think that, you know, that I, I read a, 
I read the Pew study a couple, three, four months the ago. What study? The what study? The Pew, P-E-W, it's a big funded study that, okay. that, it, that basically looked at North American young people under the age of 40, and it says, Where, what's your, where's your spirituality at? Oh, okay. And it was like 65% of them would, would say, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And why? Because the systems of religion have not answered those questions that you've asked, that you just talked about right now. I've never met God. I have no sense of peace in my heart. That I am filled with anxiety and fear, and I keep going to this religious thing, and it just makes me feel worse about myself. So this, the modern religion is not answering the existential questions of the people that are that it's that it's being confronted by, and in the midst of that comes along research that's beginning to say in places like Johns Hopkins, others, people are saying, I just had an encounter. And it wasn't just like I was in a therapy session with a therapist and I really helped, you know, help me deal with my marriage. No, I'm having an encounter in a therapy session in four to six hours where I met God. And it sounds like Paul on the road to Damascus, moving from Saul to Paul. It's a life-changing event where they were blind and now they see. They describe it in those terms. They would say, up until now, I feel like I had scales on my, head, my eyes on how I saw myself, my place in the universe, where I was going, my relationship to all the things and my anxieties in my life. And now after this, there's a before and there's an after. That sounds like salvation to me. And people are experiencing salvation in therapy rooms all across North America. And now they're coming out saying, yeah, I experienced a mystical, spiritual experience. What do you, can someone help me make sense of this? Right. That's what's happening. Yeah. And so it's not happening on Sunday mornings uh, in the church. Yeah, I, I, I want to pick It's not happening there. The, the, I think the, a real interesting piece there, Peg, is this bit about experience. Yep. Um, if I, you know, a, a critique of my own uh, religious experience in evangelicalism, it can be thought about, I mean, we talked earlier about you know, the, the communion service, that when I was trained, you know, theologically, it was drilled into my brain, memorial, memorial, memorial. Mm-hmm. What does it mean by that? That the, the communion service is a remembrance, and which is largely a cognitive process, so that I'm remembering what Jesus did for me, I'm remembering this. Now, the, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. I have this thing they call real benefits. They say, oh no, something mystical yeah. happens. Magical. When Magical when yeah, you take yeah. the Eucharist, when you take the 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 communion, when you do that, You're drinking God's blood, right? But we have, the divine is coming in you. But the sensible, <laughs> the the civil uh, uh, approach to religion yeah. says no, no, no. We're not going like you say. We're not drinking blood. We're not, yeah. and we we just want to make a memorial service. And you said earlier, you used the the term flaccid. It is flaccid. It, it's got no punch to it. And so to, to make it meteor, they add fear into it and getting right with God yeah. and all that kind of shit. What we're talking about through, through uh, Mira Rescue and yeah. these ideas is that is it possible that even within our own religious tradition for centuries that the, the, this ritual that has been a regular part of a Christian experience was psychedelic in its in its mm-hmm. substance. In other words, it, it began, uh, do you remember Lori, who had, we talked about her trip a, a couple of podcasts ago, when she, you know, she had, she told me that the veil between this life and the next life is so thin. Mm-hmm. She kept saying, it's just so thin. And, and yet it's, it's there, 
and yeah. we and it's psychedelics that are able to kind of bridge that that gap so that we're able to get glimpses and that's another part about mm -hmm. you know psychedelic experiences that that they they seem so consistent they give these things about god they give these things about love about interconnection about wisdom about beauty about love there's these these consistent yeah. themes but you know what they don't reveal very much how the fucking universe works you don't get much about how the universe works. The only guy that comes close is Boshi, and mm -hmm. he had to do 73 high-dose LSD trips, you know, to begin saying, okay, I got something to say about maybe how the universe works. But nobody else gets much insight into that. Mm -hmm. It's more what they get is these universal themes. And that's what's fascinating. So go through those. So these are the things that universally show up in all the research that we're coming out of UCLA, Johns Hopkins, UBC. Well, this Instagram. is Bill Richards stuff, right? This is Bill Richards, sacred knowledge. So Bill Richards, and, and we'll play a kip, clip from Bill Richards, hopefully. Oh, and I'm gonna, let's play it in this podcast. And uh, we can, we can he is one of the godfathers of this. He's in his late 70s. Uh, he, would, he treated the last person with psilocybin in the States legally um, at Baltimore, uh, the hospital in Maryland in 1971. He was the right. Guy. He bridged the he two. Bridged, bridged yeah, so he was yeah. doing all this research in the '60s and '70s, and they got shut down. And he thought, "Wow, my work is over." And now, 50 years later, all of his now he gets to be brought on as the Godfather at Johns Hopkins, helping oversee all that work. That's quite there. a story. Quite a it story. It is amazing. I had a chance to talk with him. And Probably I, thousands of trips. He's, yes, he said that he him personally has experienced this, and then he's led. He says. I, I've lost count, five, maybe 5,000 people I've been able to at least sit close with. And, right. And he know. said, in, a, in his book, he says, uh, uh, if I could bring, and not just him, but other, yeah. other scholars he's brought into this, there are six unifying themes to these psychedelic trips. There's issues of God, issues of love, inter issues of interconnectedness, issues of beauty, issues of wisdom, and... Another one that's escaping me. These are the six yeah. that are consistent, right? And wow, how amazing great is that? That's what you get. You get connection, a sense of a, a divine system of the universe. You get, you know, you're confronted by your immortality. That's your, your immortality. Yeah. Yeah. It says he says the common core of insights typically includes the reality of God, immortality, interrelationships, love, beauty, and emerging wisdom. And I love that con yeah. that concept of emerging wisdom. wisdom. That yeah. all of the, I, the way that I, I like to think of it, Peg, is people after they have these psychedelic experiences begin to wake up. Yeah, they begin to just like, oh, oh, I I know how to do this. Yeah, I've got some wisdom here that they had all along, but it's been mm -hmm. clouded by trauma or clouded by just how the noise of life. It just it's mm -hmm. hard for us to to mm -hmm. spend quiet enough quiet moments to be able to tap into our wisdom it seems like psychedelics mm -hmm. are a way to do it in this experiential way yeah and i think that's what's unique i mean i again um in in my reading so so much of of christianity uh has been about a belief a cognitive thing about you've got to assent to certain things or make decisions or it's so externalized right do this thing behave moralism choice what this is saying um is this is an experience you have not of a set of beliefs you do this is this isn't catechism class no you're going no to. you don't have to kind of assent you know just sign on the dotted line that you believe these these kind of ideas yeah, i agree with these ideas who cares that has nothing to do with this what, what you know this is this book the immortality key talks about which is 
Once you have these experiences, your life begins and community. He talks about the why people do these in community is that you begin to help integrate these divine, powerful experiences within a community of people that know you and love you and help you can make sense of the trauma and pain and help you land these experiences. So you're not kind of floating off disconnected, but you're actually embedded into real life of raising kids and working and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's no sense that these experiences pull you out of life. They're actually trying to allow you to live in the present moment in a more holistic way in each unfolding of each moment. Right. You know, whether those moments be hard or difficult or calls that your kid's in trouble and this is happening or you've got cancer or whatever is happening. These are the things that unfold for us and how you can, how can we do things, have an experience in life that can help us make sense of the unfolding moments and be with gratitude. Man, these psychedelics can do that. So I, you know, I've been a, a marriage and family therapist for 30 years. So I know how to do marriage and family therapy. I've sat with couples for, you know, for decades, trying as a therapist to shift some major uh, beliefs about, how, about what marriage is about, what their, who their partner is. And one of the most uh, intractable ones in this area, just for lack of a better word, I'll just call sexism. And it's a, it's a, it's a non-egalitarian, non-partnership view of the marriage relationship, which, which essentially in this area says the, the husband, man, human is, is the leader of the home. And, and I have found when I'm able through laborious and very expensive psychotherapy over a period of a year, able to shift that so that uh, largely it's the a shift that happens within the the man and he begins to recognize just how the greatness of his wife and and begin to respect her and so that's when a shift happens it's really hard to do so over the last year uh, I've been so privileged Peg that people have had these psychedelic experiences have come and asked me to integrate help make sense of their experience it's a real privilege you get to hear all these trip stories and I just love it and I'm thinking about one guy who, who said uh, one, of his, one of his things he told me was he wanted to have a, a better marriage. Like he, he, was, he, wanted, he didn't know how to do it. He knew that things were in trouble. And during his trip experience, uh, he said all of a sudden he had a vision of his wife rising out of the ocean. And he saw her as almost a greater being than him. And, and the, the power of it was just for him to say, oh, I need to follow you. My whole marriage, you've had to follow me. And now I'm having this powerful vision, ecstatic, real experience, not a therapy session with Dave, not a you know 10-hour video class I'm going to go to at my Sunday school. I'm having the experience. And he emerged out of that. The first thing he did, he told me, the first thing he did after his trip experience was to go to his wife and tell her that and say, I'm so sorry. I've treated you like a lesser being and I, I realize your knowledge of love, of sacrifice, of giving, of, of caring for others puts you into a different league than I am and I need to follow you. Mm. And that to me, I don't know how to do that therapeutic, yeah. like Peg. I, and yet this is what happened in one experience. Yeah. With, with, uh, with a psychedelic, it just blew my mind. Yeah, and, and I think when you start you know, getting into these trip stories and then meeting people, um, you, you, it, it's, it's so universal. It's like, 
another one, another one, another one. The, the potential for healing uh, and, and, and healing of relationships, of parents with their kids, of, of marriages being healed, of, of trauma being released, of, of people just finding a, a deep sense of peace and joy and contentment in their life. Uh, you know, and I think, I, I think it's going to show up in things like uh, a, a reverence for the feminine in our world. Uh, a, a shifting of how of how these how the patriarchal systems have dominated our planet for so long, and I think for me as a white male, I'm beginning to be so aware of how strong the male voice is in my in my life, and how it's so easy to dominate a conversation. I'm a big storyteller. I'm a loud guy. I got lots to say, and everybody gives you the platform yeah, to do it. Totally, and and yet there's this call to say. How are you going to use your power as a white, male, outgoing, smart, intelligent, great storyteller? You can, you can command the room in any, doesn't matter how big the room is, 10,000, doesn't matter. I can command the room. I know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. So how do you give that power up to allow people with less power, in essence, quote, you know, not less, but less, you know, power than I have to have a space? How do I use that to be quiet now and allow others to have a voice? That's a very, you, that's not something you read. That's something that happens to you, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's it's, exper it's experiential. Stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd interest your thoughts on, on this, Peg. I don't think it's a, it's a stretch to say that uh, it feels right now, like here in 2020, it feels like the human race is, is in a bit of trouble. Like yeah. more so than I think at any point in human history, where I'm not saying that we're it's going to go badly, but I feel like we're on a bit of a bit of a fulcrum right now. Which way is this all going to tip? There's mm -hmm. big issues from from climate to power to yeah. you know um, yeah, political uh, global political issues. Yeah. Um, does it seem like coincidence mm -hmm. or not coincidence that all of a sudden? There's this psychedelic renaissance. It, it like after I watched the movie Fantastic Fungi, which is I you know we got to have a screening of yeah, it here in the in Babbittsford, yeah. but it's just a Paul Stamets beautiful um, understanding of not just the world of fungi, psychedelics, what they do, but, but healing fungi, for our planet. Yeah, that somehow in the intelligence of the fungi, our planet has said we got to help the humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, is it? I, I, I no, no, I'm curious your thoughts well, on that. You know what, Dave? I I'm. Uh, <laughs> There's this line that um, this guy named Alan Watts, this, this uh, kind of uh, th spiritual thinker in the 60s, says, he says, there's two ways of thinking about the world. One is that we were placed here by a potter, and you were placed into the world. That's, been, that's a dominating motif, that someone crafted you out of something and then placed you here. And so you feel an alienation with the world you've been placed into. Oh, sort of like... Um you're now in charge of another country. Yes, from this so, country, yes. you go to that you're country, you're that country. You're so foreign. now you're, 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 you're almost antagonistic okay, against the planet that you're on. Yeah. And he says, that's a view. There's another view that comes from these, it's a very more Eastern and it's more scientific, which means it says there's an unfolding of this planet in its 13.5 billion years of history in, the, in this universe and the 4.5 billion years that this planet has evolved. We came from it. We are not placed in it. 
we came from. We emerged from. We emerged, we are we are part of the we earth. are part of this. Earth. We are part of the ecosystem. We are the earth in that sense. Yes. So in that view, there why can't there be a, a, an organic move toward how do we evolve our planet to create entities that can think and respond and take care of it, and how do we create medicines that can help those people that are going off the rail that are us. We are part of this planet to these medicines that can help bring you back in line and bring you back connected with one another. Back to the six things that Bill Richards talks about. A connection with the divine, a connection with one another, a connection with the planet, and to know our interconnectivity with the biological species that we are part of. And that we can have a deeper connection with ourselves. I mean, this is all about connection. It's not just chance. I don't think it's chance no. either. And to me, the idea, it's, it, it's a bit mind-blowing, to be honest. I haven't got my brain around it, but I'm open to the idea, which is, is it possible that, you know, that there's greater or similar intelligences yeah. on our planet operating differently than we operate, but intelligent nonetheless, who have um, an intuitive sense of where of, we need to go. And psychedelics need now to be part of yeah. the experience of the modern world yeah. and we live in a modern world it's not an indigenous world anymore it's yeah. a modern world and to begin speaking it speaking mm -hmm. this this deep earth wisdom into the the experience of humans i mean mm -hmm. you look at the podcast you and i are doing i know this is this isn't what we did Five years ago, Peg, yeah, something has changed in five years. Yeah. And it's, and I, and you know, perhaps I, you know, it's what we're looking for and that's why we see it, but it feels bigger. It feels yeah. like it's, it's happening in different ways. Well, let's, let's, let's just put it in numbers sense because uh, you, you would say, okay, yes, you know, LSD, psychedelics, kind of that's been underground and it has a, let's say, call it 2% of the population know about it and kind of play around in that, in that part of the playground, yeah. right? What's happened is that part of the playground, that 2%, is now gone so mainstream. And you can see that on, on, you know, on, on things like you know, Tim Ferriss. Um, Number Joe, one John podcast, yeah. the top podcast the top, in the world. So just, though, just let's say Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan, just those two alone, whether you listen to them or not, their, their, their listening population is 30 to 50 million people download that a day. It's unheard of beyond any television show that you've ever done in human history. It's bigger than, right, The Office yeah, or it's, whatever. Yeah, no one's tuning in. No 50 million people. If they get that kind of audience on a Thursday night when at the, at the peak of The Office, when there's only three channels to watch, you'd be dreaming of a 10 or 20 million audience. Yeah, they're dwarfing that. So this is what's happening on our planet is they are saying stuff that people are going, about time someone's talking about the real stuff in life, you're having the right kind of guests on. You're having, when, when Tim Ferriss shared his story about sexual abuse and how the psychedelics were the only thing that began to, you know, get him in touch with what's going on yeah. in healing. Yeah. It was, we talked about it, how powerful it was. So these conversations are going mainstream. And if you came across this podcast right now, you are part of millions and hundreds of millions of people that are asking this question. And if you've never heard about this or never asked these questions, you are way behind what's the conversation that's going mm -hmm. on in our culture. You've got to get up to speed. This is not something we get to kind of like, ah, oh, that's kind of cute for some people. We're talking about things. I just listened yesterday to Paul Manley present in the House of Commons in Canada two days ago a private member's bill 
asking for the decriminalization of psychedelic plant medicines for the healing of anxiety, eating disorders. At the time when we need help, why are we banning substances that can actually help people? And so he just, and I just said, and everyone kind of clapped and I went, that, that happened this week? Paul Manley did a, a decrim bill in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Yeah, that's the conversation that's happening. As we mentioned in the last podcast, in August, the Health Minister of Canada said, yes, you can use magic mushroom psilocybin for the treatment of anxiety related to a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. Yeah. And this week, this same organization, Theracell, we are expecting that the health minister is going to approve uh, us to use psilocybin in the training of people to hold space for these people. Yeah, like therapists. And this others, is yeah. Canada. This is where we live, and this is our government. This is happening doing today. This right. is happening right now. Right. You know. But, well, you know, Dave, we, we've got so much to talk about. I want to just do a. a um, we'll probably do a little bit about uh, Bill Richards. I'm going to put a little piece in here. Okay. Um, in, into the podcast, but there's so much for us to talk about, and you can clearly tell that both you and I. Uh, you know, have, have these passions about about this topic, and I, I think it's becoming quite clear that these two worlds that we are both interested in are, are kind of coming together. You coming at it from a deeply therapeutic area, yeah. which is how do I help people primarily that are dealing with deep PTSD and trauma and these kinds of things, anxiety and stuff, like and anxiety, and I'm coming at it from loving that. I'm coming at it from this kind of historical, theological, uh, and and philosophy kind of stuff. And, uh, and I'm, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's so interesting. This is, uh, for a guy like me, Dave, um, who I'm, I'm incredibly curious and I, 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 uh, yeah, you are. I, I love kind of pulling out the string on a ball and seeing how far that string goes down. And I, I have never delved into a topic in my life that has yielded as much joy and delight and insight as this topic. And, uh, so I, yeah, I look forward to keeping this conversation going for many more sessions. But today was fun, man, just riffing on yeah, some yeah, of yeah. these insights. Yeah. Cool, thanks. So, thanks, man. All right. Audio jump.